In its simplest definition, microfinance refers to small loans for low-income people, typically less than $1,000. Easy, right? In theory, yes, but in practice, the results are mixed. On today's episode of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a series from Foreign Policy, we explore why some microfinance practices work really well, while others fall short. I'm Rena Nainen. Let's start with the good side of microfinance. There are about 140 million microcredit borrowers globally. That's according to the latest industry estimates. That's up 18-fold from the 1990s, a huge increase in access to credit for many low-income people, 80% of whom are women, like this one. I had been dreaming of designing and making my own clothes. However, I did not have enough capital to buy a sewing machine or necessary equipment and tools in order to achieve my dreams. This is Kudret Birkul. Back in 2009, Kudret was in her late 20s. She had a limited education and felt like she was working in dead-end jobs. What Kudret really wanted was freedom. Freedom to make her own choices, start a clothing business. At the time, that seemed impossible. None of the big banks would lend to her, and her assets were next to none. She was just too big of a risk. But things changed when a friend told her about something called the Turkish Grameen Microfinance Program, or TGMP. The program also distributes loans through the international nonprofit Kiva. The program de-risked its loans by keeping them small and by investing in the entrepreneurs themselves, teaching them some of the business tools they need to be successful. For Kudret, the program was a godsend. The best part of this process was that TGMP believed my dreams before considering my assets or ability to pay, unlike others. While all other financing models are based on your repayment budget, the microfinance system gave me this opportunity by believing in me. The TGMP program started with a three-day training workshop where Kudret learned some of the financial basics of keeping a balanced book. But beyond building her business skills, the program also encouraged her to leverage her network. The program advised Courdrette to form a lending group with four other friends, which helped de-risk their loan by spreading out the liability. Soon after, the group received their first microcredit loan. Courdrette used this new money to invest in her dream business. I bought a sewing machine with the first microcredit I received. My sewing machine is very valuable to me. Afterwards, I bought all the equipment and tools that are necessary to grow my business. As her business grew, so did her quality of life. She was suddenly able to afford better living conditions, make more discretionary purchases. Financial independence gave her confidence and courage to become the woman she had always hoped and wanted to be. And Cordrette says it all started with the microfinance program that decided she was a worthy investment. 13 years ago, I was only dreaming. But now, I have become a person who has realized things beyond my wildest dreams. And I am not afraid of financial worries and starting a job. I am among the artisans who are known and loved in my own city. So if you're not familiar and you're wondering who decided to start a microfinance bank, which bet on people most often overlooked, the answer is Dr. Mohamed Yunus, an economics professor. 
He put his theory about lending small loans to poor people to the test when he started the Grameen Bank in his home country of Bangladesh in the mid-1970s. The program was so successful, it began spreading throughout his country and eventually the world. In 2006, Dr. Yunus won the Nobel Peace Prize in recognition of microfinance's potential to uplift the world's poor. Mohammed Yunus receiving his diploma and medal from the leader of the Nobel Committee, Ola Danvald Mjöss. Dr. Yunus and the Grameen Bank successfully demonstrated that investing in low-income people can be a practical business model. Today, there are 10,000 microfinance institutions globally. And walk into any of these banks, you'll find stories just like Kudret's, where women were able to use a microfinance loan to transform their lives, especially in the area of entrepreneurship. But that's not to say these programs don't have some drawbacks. One big downside of microfinance can be exorbitantly high interest rates. As the number of microfinance institutions took off in the 1990s, interest rates spiked, with some microfinance groups charging rates as high as 30 to 50 percent. Compared to loan sharks asking for 300 percent interest, this may be better, but these high rates had a huge toll. In 2010, the New York Times reported a large number of suicides in India from people unable to pay back their microfinance loans. And according to a 2015 research paper from Professor Esther Duflo, the Nobel Prize economist who was on our first episode this season, introducing microfinancing into a community did not necessarily correlate to increase in health, education, or women's empowerment. There is a positive effect on having access to credit on the business performance of the established businesses but not on the, on the new businesses, and no effect on average. While Duflo was able to confirm that microfinance helps people with clear business ideas, its ability to positively change the welfare of low-income women was limited. All of this criticism over the past decade has made the microfinance world go through a lot of introspection. First, many groups lowered their interest rates, for what it's worth, Kudret pays a 15% service fee on her microcredit. And there's a big shift towards increasing financial education for low-income borrowers, beyond just increasing access to credit. Some call this broader philosophy financial inclusion. So how do we keep the good parts of microfinance while weeding out practices that can lead to even more desperate situations for low-income people? And what can banking institutions do in general to provide more opportunities for economic mobility? To help us answer these questions, we reached out to Roshane Zafar. In the mid-90s, Zafar worked with Mohammed Yunus at one of his banks and was inspired to start her own program. So in 1996, she launched the Kashif Foundation in her home country of Pakistan. It was the first microfinance institution in the country. Today, Kashif boasts that it's the largest lender to women in Pakistan. Zafar says her aim is to treat each customer with respect, no matter their background. This belief that each person has potential is something that developed when she was an undergrad studying business at the University of Pennsylvania. I often say that I learned more about my own country and its history and its politics and the state of affairs after I went abroad because that's when I really had access to knowledge and information. And I could question and I could, uh, my curiosity could be quelled. It was amazing. I mean, I, I was con in a constant state of amazement in my first year. 
and I kept my identity. So that was the other side of it. I knew that I was here to learn, to grow, to develop, but I also wanted to, I was also very clear who I was. After I graduated from the business school, I decided to change gears and uh, study development economics. And the idea behind that was really the, the question that I had, why are certain countries in the world developed and why are others not? And what was it? Was it culture? Was it society? Was it a normative question? Was it values? Was it just discrimination on the larger economic arena? What was it? So that question really was what was at the back of my mind. And that's why I then started studying developing, the development economics. And that naturally led me to the, the World Bank in Pakistan. So after getting your master's, you moved back to Pakistan, which is what you'd always planned to do, and you work for the World Bank. What was that like? So one of the most amazing things about that experience was actually getting to travel across Pakistan. I think those four years that I spent, I just traversed the country and learned from the people and heard their stories and their narratives. And I think that made my life richer. One of my contentions coming back to uh, the World Bank you know, was this question of the way projects were designed. They were always designed in offices. They were they hardly ever looked at the real needs of the people. They're very technically driven. While I was questioning all this and I would speak to the women and I, I'd ask them, the first thing they would say to me, do you think we are different than you are? Do you think our aspirations are different than yours? We have the same dreams. We want a better life for our families. We want a good good home. We want to send our children to better schools but we don't have the wherewithal to do that. So can you provide us the solution? And then Eureka, as they sometimes say, you know, the stars align. I met Dr. Yunus at the time that I was confronted by this question. How can we help women to earn livelihoods? How can we change the dynamics within the home when it comes to economic choices? And so, you know, microfinance was one of the tools that miraculously works. It's a very simple idea. I remember Dr. Yunus telling me this when we met uh, the first time. He said, oh, microfinance is very simple. It's not rocket science. We tell women take money to earn money, and that's it. Dr. Yunus, of course, was the founder of the Grameen Bank. This first meeting with Dr. Yunus at UNICEF really changed your life. You wanted to learn more about microfinance, and also you were pretty open with Dr. Yunus that you were looking for a change and that you wanted to leave the World Bank you were also pretty bold. You actually left and you didn't even have a job lined up. You sent a letter to Dr. Yunus basically saying that you were looking for work. And it took a while before you heard back from him. And then you got something in the mail, a ticket to go to Bangladesh. And of course, this ticket's from Dr. Yunus. He wires this ticket to you so you can visit and see his work in Bangladesh at the Grameen Bank. And there, you basically spent three months following him and his team around. What did you learn from that time with him? I think the first thing I learned from him is that every individual is unique and every individual has the capacity for changing their lives. So when he designed microfinance, he put what is now called solidarity lending, when four or five women of similar backgrounds get together and they take responsibility for each other. So if one can't pay an installment one a month, the others help her out. So it becomes like a, a guarantee, self-guarantee program where everybody does reciprocal support for each other. And that's really what the beauty of microfinance was for women, the associative strength. That's why it grew. The other thing is when you give money to women, they're more responsible because they know this is their lifeline. 
and if they don't use this productively and they don't pay it back they're not going to be able to put food on the table for their children so they see the pain also when a woman earns she's more likely to invest 70 to 80% of that money back in her family the biggest change you begin to see in women who take money and start businesses is that they send their children to school they're four times as likely to send their children to school that's what our data tells us there was one woman's story in particular that really moved you can you tell me about that until i had seen this with my own eyes in bangladesh it seemed too unbelievable you were like i was like you know how can a loan of 30 dollars or 100 dollars change lives so one of the narratives i always relate is about this one grameen borrower jahanara begum prior to grameen she only had one saree and when she had to wash it she would wash one part of it wrap the other half around herself then wrap the wet one around her and wash the remaining because she didn't have another saree when she was really really poor and when i stayed with her she said now i'll tell you the difference and she took me into her house and she sort of drew the curtain back and there were 15 sarees hanging there and she said to me this is the difference now i have a saree for every occasion that i want to wear what microfinance really does is that it allows you to invest not in just your current needs but also in your future aspirations which in her case was sending her children to school building her house and ultimately having enough savings so that she could buy herself luxuries that she wanted to enjoy So you launched the Kashif Foundation, the first microfinance organization in Pakistan. This was back in 1996. Since then, you served more than 3.6 million women. You're actually the largest provider of loans for women in Pakistan. How did you get started? Ah, uh, that's a very interesting question because Dr. Yunus had a lot to do with it. Three months into my visit, he called me into his office and said, "You know, I need to talk to you. What's your plan? What are you thinking?" And I said, "Look, I just want to stay around here and do some research and write about this." And and he looked at me and said, "You know, we don't need you in Bangladesh. Pakistan needs you. Go back, think about this. And here's a ten thousand dollar check that I'm keeping for you. In case you decide to start this in in Pakistan, let me know. I'm keeping this money aside." And then I came back and I put all my thoughts down and I sent a proposal to Dr. Yunus and he of course immediately sent me that money and that's how we started and um, I am from Lahore so I decided to work around the suburb areas because this was what I was familiar with that two years that I worked with women in the field I worked as a business development officer because I really wanted to understand the challenges that women face My mother used to joke with me 2 years into this she said you don't know the names of your own relatives but you know the names of all your clients in the field <laughs> you know them more than you know your own relatives and that's really what happened after a while they became like family We'll hear more from Rashana Zafar and her quest to expand access to loans after the break Let's face it, money is the one subject we all need to deal with, but no one actually wants to talk about. The good news is there's a podcast helping you learn everything about money no one taught you. Meet Everyone's Talking Money, hosted by me, Shauna Game. Everyone's Talking Money focuses on relevant, inclusive, and forward-thinking conversations around money and just helps you get in a better relationship with your money no matter what your goals are. Do yourself a favor and subscribe to Everyone's Talking Money podcast. 
on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a production of Foreign Policy. I'm Rena Nainen. Back now to my conversation with Roshani Zafar, the founder of the Kashif Foundation, the first microfinance institution in Pakistan. Before the break, she was recounting to me her experiences at the World Bank and learning from Muhammad Yunus at the Grameen Bank. In 1996, when she started off on her own with the Kashif Foundation, you'd think that maybe, with all this great experience and backing, she'd have a relatively smooth launch. But as she discovered, that was far from reality. You know, the first failure was that I couldn't convince women uh, in the first year to take loans from us. So when we would go to women, they'd say, we don't work talk to our men. This is not our space. This is not where we make decisions. The men are the earners, the breadwinners. We stay at home. We are homemakers. And that's when I began to understand the complexities of gender dynamics within households and how we have to then bring everyone along. We have to speak to the mother-in-law. We have to talk to the men. We have to convince the entire family that this is a good idea. And once that happens, then things begin to change because doors open. And then slowly, when the first five women took loans from us, the next hundred were easier. So what I learned with women was that uh, role modeling matters. You know, the same thing that I was telling you about associative strength. Women can tend to help each other out. So if one, you, you know, you see one woman succeeding, then the next one will appear and so on and so forth. So the glass ceiling begins to break to a certain extent. I'm realizing I actually need to ask you a more basic question. How does the Kashif Foundation work? How do you provide loans to women? So the way it begins is we identify the entrepreneur and we have business development officers whose job is going from door to door to mobilize the women. So in the context of microfinance, the bank, you don't go to the bank. The bank actually comes to you. Low-income families are so intimidated by the financial sector that they're not going to walk into your office and say, oh, give me a loan. So it's the other way around. We have to empower them with our staff going out. So we have trained staff that mobilize in communities. They find the entrepreneur, and then they sit with them and understand their business plan. And in that business plan, they also advise them, and they do a whole analysis of uh, the, uh, the business, the household, the income, the earnings. And at the end of the day, they see how much debt uh, burden capacity does that household have. On that basis, then they send the information to the branch manager. So all this process is decentralized. The idea of microfinance is quick access because remember, poor people need immediate money. They have opportunities to give you an example there could be a festival where they want to put a you know to they want to set up a stall for selling food so they need the money instantly so access matters and so one of the things we try to do is have a very short turn turnaround time once the decision on the loan is made the client will get the money in two to three days between 10 to 15 days later the business development officer then visits the household to see how the money is being planned has it been spent what's the planning how's the business going So this whole process takes at least one month. Once it's completed, then over the year, the business development officer does three to four check-ins to see how the business is doing. And the recovery comes in once a month. You're talking a lot about individualized solutions. I understand you've moved away from the group savings model. Why did you do that? So when microfinance started as a movement, the solidarity piece of it was very important because it gave one woman the confidence to be part of something that was risky because uh, the loans had to be paid back. 
So the groups provided that guarantee, that support, that confidence to an individual woman to work with each other. But with time, it became a disabler because it prevented women who wanted to grow their businesses faster because everybody had to stay at the same level in a group. The other thing was that women started getting uh, tired of taking responsibility for each other. So after 10 years, uh, you want, you know, what you've done is you've, you have actually demonstrated your credibility on the organization, but the organization still saying, well, the groups matter, liability matters, stick together. Then the third thing that was beginning to be a problem 10, 15 years into uh, our program was that you couldn't really tell who was using the money because money was fungible. So one woman would give her loan to somebody else. So there was pipelining happening. And a lot of our clients started saying, you know, I don't want to take responsibility anymore. I know how this works. I have a business. Invest in my business. So then over time, this is what many organizations have gone through, and we call it group fatigue. So the group fatigue set in, and ultimately the entrepreneurial approach kicked in, which is what we do. Now we look at the enterprise, the entrepreneur, her family, and her business. So what do you think about women's savings groups now? Do you think they're still helpful for someone who's just starting out. I think that for the beginning, it's very important. That's how you should start out in a new environment, new community, new context. But with time, you should also have the other pathway. So just you could do it with new groups, but over time you graduate them into individual lending. Uh, that's what our experience has been. But now we've been in the business for so long that even if we, when we go into a new area, uh, we still do the individual part of it because that's been that's the brand positioning that we have now. Toward the beginning of our conversation, you were mentioning that you had this big question on your mind as you went into development economics. Do you have an answer to that question today? What makes some countries thrive and others not so much? Uh, well, if I was to give you the short answer, I would say governments and policies from a north-south, then, of course, you talk about trade barriers and you talk about discriminatory practices that led to dysfunctional markets. But that's another debate of why certain countries developed. And then, of course, there's the colonial history, which uh, we've all been through. So this is a very long debate. I don't think I found the answer, but I do believe this is my strong belief that the crux of the matter is women. Treat your women right and there is no force that will stop you. That was Roshane Zafar, founder of the Kashif Foundation, the first microfinance institution in Pakistan. They are the largest provider of loans for women in Pakistan. Small microfinance loans have transformed the lives of many low-income women around the world. In fact, Zafar actually opened a Kashif bank in 2008 to try to serve small and medium-sized women business owners. But it was too difficult. The Kashif Foundation is a nonprofit. The bank was a for-profit. The bank's investors wanted returns, and the regulations were onerous. So she ended up selling the bank to a larger microfinance group, Finca. This is all to say even Roshane found this space, increasing loans to women from small and medium-sized businesses, really hard. This is why it's called the missing middle in the finance world, too big for microfinance and too small for good commercial bank loans. On the next episode, we talk to a World Bank expert about the best ways to fix this missing middle credit gap. And we hear from an amazing entrepreneur in Nigeria who overcame countless obstacles to grow a medium-sized business. I get a call from one of my teammates and he says, Ra, there, there are men here and they want to demolish the store. 
and they have bulldozers and you need to get over. And I ran over in my, honestly, literally, I was still in my pajamas. And they said the landlord that we got the place from was not approved to be there. So I started making calls. No one could help me. Nothing could stop that bulldozer coming down about 30 minutes later. More on The Missing Middle next week. And that does it for today's show. The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women is a production of Foreign Policy and made possible through funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and write us a review. It really helps spread the word about what we're doing. The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women is hosted by me, Rena Ninen. Laura Rosbrow Tellum is our senior producer. Rob Sachs, our managing director. Foreign Policy's audio team includes Rosie Julin, Megan Cattell, Anissa Pazeshki, Zamone Perez, and Dana Fran. Special thanks this week to Stephen Rasmussen from CGAP, the consultative group to assist the poor. He recommended that we talk to Roshana. Also, our thanks to Alicia Koskal and Britt Herring from Kiva, Andre Simon from Finca, and a number of others who spoke to us for this episode. Our thanks to you, and we'll be back in your feed next week.